Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. A closer look at 12 ordinary men. And the last time that we were together prior to the movie that you saw, and um, I really had the opportunity to kind of stand before you and go over some things, we talked about the fact that there was a specific group of people um, known as the Shalia. And what was so special about this particular group is, for lack of a better term, I'll try and put it, because I try to put everything in terms of modern day, so it's easier for people to understand, okay. So, if for some reason a person is having a challenge and they need to hire an attorney, okay, of course they could go and they could get a public defender, you know, and I'm sure that they're good and they're adequate, but if they really want somebody good to handle their case, they get someone who has some prominence. They get a specialized attorney in specialized fields, no different than you would get a specialized doctor for something if your body was on, you know, under attack. You wouldn't go to a podiatrist if, um, which is a foot doctor, you wouldn't go to a foot doctor if someone told you that you were battling breast cancer. You would rather go to an oncologist who deals with cancer a little bit more than the foot doctor, okay? And you would, if you've been brought up on some serious charges, you would like to have a specialized attorney. You wouldn't just want to go to the public defender who might just be somebody who's just been practicing law for a shorter period of time, or maybe, you know, they're just kind of like have expertise all over the place. Not expertise, they just have practice all over the place, no particular expertise. The Shalia were people during this time that were the specialist, for lack of a better term. And people who lived during this time, if you were part of the Shalia, they knew that you were extra special, that you had some clout, that you represented something very, very important. The Sanhedrin, which we know is the group that dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had their own specialist or shalia, okay? However, when it came to the apostles, they were what you would consider the shalia for Jesus, okay? So the reason that's important is because all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all of the other people who were not following Jesus would recognize that being his shalia, they walked with the same authority that he did because that's what the shalia did. They weren't just your run-of-the-mill, you know, everyday people. Are you getting that a little bit? Okay, great. So. That brings us to the point where we realize that these 12 ordinary men are more than now just apostles. They've now kind of like stepped up and now they're part of the Shalia as well. The thing that's so important is that Shalia is a word that is the exact parallel 
in the Aramaic language. And keep in mind that it's the language, like we just said, that was common in Israel during the time during Jesus's time. And in the first century Jewish culture, the Shalia, they always were the official representative of the Sanhedrin, like I just said to you. And the Shalia would speak for the Sanhedrin. It was almost like, even when you think back when you're reading scripture, and we think about the centurion, when the centurion said to Jesus, if you give the command for my servant to be healed, you just have to say the word. And he considered it done. They dealt with things a little bit differently than we're accustomed to dealing with it. And that's the importance for us to understand that the apostles, they were looked at like if they said something, it was like Jesus saying it. So it's kind of important to understand the gravity of that, okay? So the office of the Shalia was very well known. Shalia were sent out to settle legal or religious disputes and they acted with the full authority of the whole council of the Sanhedrin. Some prominent rabbis also had their own little Shalia group, okay, or sent ones, who taught their message and represented them with their full authority. Even the Jewish Mishnah, which you're not gonna remember that, but just know that I've told you, because I doubt if you're gonna remember that, because I really spent no time on the Jewish Mishnah, which is a collection of oral traditions originally conceived as a commentary of the law. They recognized the role of the Shalia. It says that the one sent by man is as the man himself, which is why I gave you that example of the centurion, okay? Therefore, when Jesus appointed the apostles, he was stating something very familiar to the people in that culture. They were his delegates. They were his trusted shalia. So just remember that term. If you don't remember anything else, remember the term shalia. They spoke with his authority, Jesus's authority. They delivered his message, the message of Jesus, and exercised his authority. The familiar role of the Shalia in that culture virtually defined the task of the apostles. Now, obviously, Christ would delegate his authority to these 12 and send them out with his message. They would represent him as what? Official delegates. Everyone in that culture would have instantly understood the nature of the office because, like I said, other people had Shalia as well. These 12 men, commissioned as Jesus's apostles, would speak and act with the same authority as the one who sent them. Apostle was therefore a title of great respect and privilege. No longer just disciples, they are now apostles, Shalia. Luke uses the word apostle six times in his gospel and about 30 times in the book of Acts. Their role in the gospels pertains primarily to taking the kingdom message to Israel. In Acts, however, they are engaged in the founding of the church. Not only would they found the church and play a pivotal, pivotal rather leadership role as the church grew, but they also became the channels through which most of the New Testament was given. They received truth from God by divine revelation. And this is clearly written, which I'm gonna have you go to because you might not recall it so easily. Turn with me to Ephesians, the third chapter, and we're gonna look at verses five and six. Ephesians three, and we're gonna look at verses five and six. I'm gonna share it with you just out of the Amplified. 
Um, we have looked at the New King James Version and the message, but I'm just going to share it out of the Amplified tonight. Starting with verse 5, it says, which in other generations was not disclosed to mankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. It is this, that the Gentiles are now joint heirs with the Jews and members of the same body and joint partakers sharing in the same divine promise in Christ Jesus through their faith in the good news of salvation. They receive truth, remember, by God, how? From divine revelation. Now, I'm going to press the pause button here, because I didn't say this last time, but this is very interesting to me. We have the Holy Spirit within us. He is always giving to us divine revelation, because we can just sit and communicate with him all the time. Notice what these apostles were supposed to do. They were the Shalia. They were the representatives of Christ. We are what? The ambassadors of Christ. And you keep hearing me say it. You keep hearing, you heard Elder Nate say it so well on Sunday. We are supposed to be going out and sharing what it is that we have been given with other people. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. Because think about it. Our calling is greater than these 12 ordinary men. Because these 12 ordinary men did not have the whole entire Godhead living within them. We do. So mm, that's something we really need to think about. So they were the source of all true church doctrine. And that is described in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts, the second chapter. And we're going to look at verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. And in the Amplified, it says, they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles and to fellowship, to eating meals together, and to prayers. Um, and the message, I like it this way. The message says, that day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. This is basically really kind of letting us know people were paying attention to these apostles. And they were listening to them, taking them at their word, and following their instruction and their teaching and governing their lives as such. Now, before the New Testament was complete, the apostles' teaching was the only source of truth about Christ and church doctrine. Their teaching was received with the same authority as the written word. Actually, the written New Testament is nothing other than the spirit-inspired scriptural record of the apostles' teaching. That's really what it is. Technically, the apostles were given to do what? To edify the church. Let's look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And you're very familiar with this, I'm sure. Ephesians 4. And we're going to look at, verse, at verses 11 and 12. And I'm going to share this with you out of the Living Translation, the Living Bible Translation. Starting with verse 11, it says, Some of us have been given special ability as apostles. To others, he has given the gift of being able to preach well. Some have special ability in winning people to Christ, helping them to trust him as their savior. Still others have a gift for caring for God's people as a shepherd does his sheep, leading and teaching them in the ways of God. Why is it that he gives us these special abilities to do certain things best? It is that God's people will be equipped to do better work for what? 
the body of Christ. So, these 12 ordinary men were the original Christian teachers and preachers. Their teaching as recorded in the New Testament is the only rule by which sound doctrine can be tested even today. They were actually considered examples of virtue. We see this if you are, go to Ephesians 3, verse 5. And all of these things I'm going to give to you really quickly out of the Amplified because we'll just stay in one translation and it's quick. So Ephesians 3, 5 says, which in other generations was not disclosed to mankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. They were stated as holy apostles. They set a standard for godliness and true spirituality. They stood as the first examples for believers to emulate or imitate. They actually set the standard for everyone who would subsequently become leaders in the church. They had unique power to perform miracles that confirmed their message. Let's look at Hebrews, the second chapter, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. Let me know if you're there. Okay. Starting with verse 3, it says, How will we escape the penalty if we ignore such a great salvation, the gospel, the new covenant. For it was spoken at first by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us and proved authentic by those who personally heard him speak. And besides this evidence, God also testifying with them, confirming the message of salvation, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles carried out by Jesus and the apostles, and by granting to believers the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now this shows us that God confirmed his word through the apostles by the miracles that they were able to do. The New Testament indicates that only the apostles and those that were closely associated with them had the power to do miracles. So it wasn't something that, you know, everybody could just do. That's why such miracles are spoken of as the signs of an apostle. Now we see this in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter and the 12th verse. And it says, and this is the Amplified, the signs that indicate a genuine apostle were performed among you fully and most patiently, signs and wonders and miracles. As a result of this, the apostles were greatly blessed and held in high esteem by the people of God. The expectations that Jesus had for them were met through their faithful perseverance. His promise to them was fulfilled how? In the growth and expansion of the church. However, and this part I like, because this starts to get into what I call the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> because all along we've been talking about how wonderful these apostles are, and you know, you think that they rode around on clouds, they were just these little angelic people. Okay, but guess what? They were still human. So therefore, by them still being human, they were starting to develop some concern about the way things were going and what might happen to them. Now, think about that. Here you are, and that's how we have to put this um, 
in juxtaposition to our own lives. You know, here they are, these ordinary men with no special skills, they were no big deal. All of a sudden now, they're walking around with Jesus and it's already been revealed he is the son of God. <laughs> I can only imagine what some people even in this room would feel if they were just hanging out with Jesus every day, you know? What would that do to their headspace? You know, would they think all of a sudden that, oh, look at me, you know? And then let them go ahead and perform a miracle or two? Oh my, do you really think you'd just be able to go to McDonald's with them next week? I don't think so, <laughs> okay? So this was starting to kind of happen with these dear little disciples, these apostles, their heads were starting to expand and now they were getting to a point where they're starting to actually question Jesus. Can you imagine? So anyway, look at this scripture. Turn with me to um, Luke's gospel. I really want you to see this. Chapter 18. Because we're going to see in this scripture when Peter, on behalf of the others, starts to question Jesus. The one thing you'll find about Peter is he shows up everywhere. Okay? He's kind of like the one who's always got his, you know, thumb in the pie, so to speak. He's always around. So he is taking it upon himself to speak for everyone else. And if we look at uh, the 28th verse of Luke 18, first I'm going to share it with you out of the New International Version. Peter said to him, him meaning Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. Whoop, whoop. Okay, like he's making a big deal out of this. And then in the Amplified, it says, Peter said, look, we have left all things, homes, families, businesses, and followed you. Meanwhile, we already know. Yeah, they left all of this, but give me a break. It wasn't like they were leaving anything all that spectacular. And even if they were, they were walking around and having intimate fellowship with the Son of God. So how dare you? But yet and still, this is what they were living and this is what they felt. Now, in other words, Peter's really asking Jesus, what's gonna happen to us? I love this, just drop down to the very next verse, verses 29 and 30, and we're gonna see how Jesus answers him. Truly I tell you, this is out of the New International Version, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. If we look at it in the Amplified, it says, and he, meaning Jesus, said to them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Now to me, I always find that interesting um, because again, I'm gonna press the pause button and, and, and compare that to us. Often you will hear people feel as if they are doing so much like if you look at a lot of parishioners who come to church and they see the people in Ministry of Helps, and Ministry of Helps is leadership, it's part of leadership in the church, and they do make certain sacrifices that the other people who show up at 9.45, 10 o'clock, some even come at 11 o'clock and the word is almost over, okay, 
um, they don't always realize that a lot of the Ministry of Health's people had to get up way before day to even get here to set everything up to do stuff. But the thing that I've always, and Ministry of Health will always have a special place in my heart, maybe because I've tried to always be part of Ministry of Health. Um, And I know the sacrifices that, that's not really, I don't consider it a sacrifice. I know we have to do a little bit extra, you know, and if you live far away, like some of us do live far away, you know, and I think of the Jenkins who live like in Pennsylvania, a whole other state, you know, people do some things. But the thing that's so wonderful is God always honors what it is that we do. We could never, ever do enough. And he doesn't expect that of us. We just do it because we worship him, we serve him, we get joy out of doing it. But the point of the matter is, he always gives to us more than we could ever give back to him. And he always takes care of us more than anybody ever could. So the point is, the fact that they were grumbling over it, it, that's why I said this is the good, the bad, and the ugly of these little apostles, because it's starting to let you see that, mm, okay, they were dealing with some things too, because how dare they? They are walking with the Son of God. They should have been willing to kiss his feet and do anything he asked them to do at any point in time. Yet and still, they're still concerned about themselves. But that lets you see what it is when you still have to deal with this human form. You know, it, 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 it allows you to get a glimpse of it. And we need to make sure we don't fall into some of the same things they did. We can learn experientially even through them. So they had not left anything that he would not more than make up to them. God did bless them in their lives. They not only gained influence, because remember, these were ordinary men that (laughs) had no special skills, there was nothing special about them, but yet and still, they did gain some influence. They gained respect and honor among the people of God. But as for their homes and families, they gained multitudes of spiritual children and brethren as the church grew and believers multiplied. In other words, they gained more than they ever had or ever would have had on their own. And the interesting part is they will still remain greatly honored in the age to come as well. These 12 ordinary men had the example of Christ continuously before them. They could listen to his teaching. They could ask him questions whenever they wanted. They could watch how he dealt with people and enjoy intimate fellowship with him in every kind of setting. Can you imagine that? He gave them, and this was interesting because this shows you again the character of Jesus. He gave them ministry opportunities, instructing them and sending them out on special assignments. He graciously encouraged them, lovingly corrected them, and patiently instructed them. Now I'm going to read that part again, because that's something that we as believers should be able to do with one another all the time. We should be able to do it not just with one another, but with our families, with our children, with our co-workers, with every human being that we come in contact with. Because we know that we are ambassadors for Christ. We know that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So that means we are capable of doing it. Yet and still, it's one of those things we still have to work at. This is what he did. He graciously encouraged them. 
lovingly corrected them and patiently instructed them. That is how the best learning always occurs. It isn't just information passed on. It's one life invested in another. I love that. That's really rich. Because when you do that, when you invest yourself into someone else's life, you really care about that person. You really are going to do something for that person. Now this is way off script, and I don't know who this is for, but hey. One of the things that I learned years ago, and people still don't understand it and adhere to it, because maybe they never were taught this. When you go to somebody's wedding, you should never go if you are not going to do what you as a witness to that union is supposed to do. When you go to somebody's wedding, you are supposed to pray for them. First of all, you're supposed to be in agreement that you feel as if they should be married. And then you are supposed to pray for them and not just pray that day, you are supposed to keep them in your prayers. You are supposed to support them. And if you don't feel as if you can do that, then you should not go because you are really lying to them lying to God and lying to yourself. And that is something a lot of people aren't trained, so they don't even think about it. They get the wedding invitation. Oh, let's see, where's the reception? Oh, that food is good, yeah, I'll go. And they just go. And you know that I'm telling the truth because think about this. How many times have you gone to somebody's wedding and reception and you find all these people at the reception that never were at the ceremony? They just showed up for the food and the party, never went to the wedding. Because the point is they're not making a commitment they don't really, they're not all in, which means they're not investing in that couple's life. That's something that we as believers have to learn more about doing because all of us are in the body of Christ. We are all interconnected, you know? Um, hmm, I don't know how, it's sort of like you can have the most beautiful, oh, I know. You know that board game, well, it's not really a board game, but that game Jenga, you can build this most beautiful thing out of Jenga, but if one little thing comes loose, the whole thing falls down. Well, that as the body of Christ, that sort of, it's similar, meaning if my sister here is walking through something, guess what? I'm walking through it with her. And if I'm not, then that means I'm not invested in her life. But guess what? If I'm not invested in her life and she's my sister, that means that I'm not invested in the body of Christ. And if I'm not invested in the body of Christ, that means all that I'm professing that I believe I'm fooling myself and it's delusional. So how can I turn around when I'm expecting God to do something for me and think it's going to happen? It doesn't work that way. You're either all in or you're not. And there are a lot of people who are still not all in. They're still kind of playing at this or play acting at it. And that's something that we really can't do. So even with Jesus right there with them, it was not an easy process for these 12 ordinary men. You see, the 12 could be amazingly thick-headed. Jesus himself often said things like, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand? I mean, he'd literally say that to them. Let's check out a few instances so you don't think I'm just making it up. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to look at chapter 15, 
verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to share all of these with you out of the Amplified. So Matthew 15, looking at verses 16 and 17, this is Jesus speaking. And he said, are you still so dull and unable to put things together? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Now that's kind of like simplistic, but they still were having a problem with it. Now you're in Matthew, just turn right over to chapter 16 and we're going to look at verse 9. Matthew 16 verse 9. Do you still not understand or remember the five loaves for the 5,000? and how many baskets you picked up. It's like they're not, he's looking at them like, you're not even paying attention to the things that you see happening with me. You're just like not getting it. What's wrong with you? Then go to Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. This is out of the Amplified again. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish men! and slow of heart to trust and believe in everything that the prophets have spoken. It is significant that scripture does not cover up their defects. The point is not to portray them as these super holy people or elevate them above mere mortals. The scripture makes it a point not to do that. If that were the aim, there would be no reason to record their character flaws. Instead of glossing over the blemishes, scripture seems to make a great deal out of their human weaknesses. It's a brilliant reminder, even to us today, that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, because this confirms it. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and verse 5. And the Amplified says this, 1 Corinthians, second chapter, verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom and rhetoric of men, but on the power of God. See, it's very important that we're mindful of these things. You know, there are people who still have an issue with where they worship if there isn't a pastor, or if there isn't a specific pastor, or I'm only gonna go here because I like that pastor, he sings well. I'm gonna go over here because I like this pastor because he's got really nice suits, and I think his wife is cute. I think that's nice where I'm gonna go. You're missing the whole boat. You're missing all of it. It's not about, we just read it. It's not my opinion. I didn't say it, okay? It specifically says that your faith should not rest on the wisdom and rhetoric of men and all the trappings of them. I added that, okay? But on the power of God. And the power of God is not based on some particular person's personality or what they wear or what their family looks like. That's not the power of God. Don't get caught up in that and miss where you're supposed to be. Definitely don't do that. So unlike the apostles, as believers, we are born again and spirit-filled. The power of the entire Godhead 
dwells within us. However, we must learn from these 12 and make sure that we do not allow ourselves to make similar mistakes. Now you may wonder, what am I talking about? So let me ask you, you know that they walked with Jesus, the master. There is no better teacher, okay? Why was the learning process so difficult for them? Why were the apostles struggling so much? First of all, that's a rhetorical question I'm going to tell you, okay? First of all, they lacked spiritual understanding. You could jot that down. They lacked spiritual understanding. Now, the difference is we have a guide filled with directions called the Bible. They did not. They were slow to hear. We already read that. And they were slow to understand. They were at various times thick, dull, stupid, and blind. And I know all of those terms were strong. However, all of those terms or their equivalents are used to describe them in the New Testament. So how did Jesus remedy their lack of spiritual understanding. This is key. You see, Jesus didn't do like some of us do when we can't understand how come somebody's not getting something or why don't they understand it? I got into this conversation with them. I told this family member what they need to do to be saved. I don't get it. Why don't they understand? They didn't get frustrated. He didn't get frustrated with them like you might be if you have. Well, most of you, your children might be older, but I remember, you know, like when you're trying to explain fractions to a child and they just do not get it, and you sit there and you cut the pie, you cut the apple, you do all that, and fractions still makes no sense, and you want to pull your hair out and you get frustrated with them that they don't get it. And it goes on and on and on. Or you get frustrated with a coworker that you're trying to explain a certain thing on the computer and they're looking at you like they've never seen a computer before. All of these things, there are still things that we deal with on a continuous basis. Okay, well, what did Jesus do? How did he handle it with them? What was his remedy for their lack of spiritual understanding? This is what I love, very simple. He just kept teaching. He never stopped. Even after his resurrection, he stayed 40 days on earth. And this is clearly written. Again, this is not my opinion. Turn with me to the book of Acts. And we're going to look at verses 3, Acts 1, the first chapter of Acts. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. I want you to see this. Let me know when you're there by saying amen. The first chapter of Acts, okay. First, I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplify. And it says... To these men, he also showed himself alive after his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross by a series of many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. While being together and eating with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, of which, he said, you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized and empowered and united with the Holy Spirit not long from now. Now, if we read those same verses of scripture in the Message Bible, it says this, Dear Theophilus, in the first volume of this book, I wrote on everything 
that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he said goodbye to the apostles, the ones he had chosen through the Holy Spirit and was taken up to heaven. After his death, he presented himself alive to them in many different settings over a period of 40 days. In face-to-face -face meetings, he talked to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. As they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem, but must wait for what the Father promised. The promise you heard from me, John baptized in water, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and soon. Jesus was persistently teaching them until the moment he ascended to heaven. Now secondly, what was the second thing about them? A challenge that made the learning process difficult for the disciples is that they lacked humility. They were self-absorbed. Remember how I said, you know, think about it, they were walking around with Jesus after a while their heads were starting to get really big. They were self-absorbed, self-centered, self-promoting, and proud. Now I'm sure you probably don't know anybody like this, right? <laughs> but they spent a lot of time arguing about who would be the greatest among them. Isn't that ridiculous? But this proves to us they're just ordinary men. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to look at the 20th chapter, verses 20 through 28. Matthew's Gospel, the 20th chapter, verses 20 through 28. I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified first, because you know I always say the Amplifier has the qualifiers. So starting with verse 20, then Salome, the mother of Zebedee's children, now Salome we know is believed to be the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary, okay? So, then Salome, the mother of Zebedee's children, James and John are the children, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down in respect, asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She answered him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit in positions of honor and authority, one on your right and one on your left. Can you imagine? I mean, but Jesus replied, you do not realize what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I am about to drink? They answered, we are able. Oh boy, are they silly. Okay, he said to them, you will drink my cup of suffering but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the other 10 heard this, they were resentful and angry at, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles have absolute power and lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, tyrannizing them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your willing and humble slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, paying the price to set them free from the penalty of sin. 
I like it out of the message because that's great with the qualifiers, but this breaks it down in very simplistic form and it says, it was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom, one at your right hand and one at your left. Jesus responded, you have no idea what you are asking. And he said to James and John, are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, sure, why not? Jesus said, come to think of it, you are going to drink my cup. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. My father is taking care of that. When the 10 others heard about this, they lost their tempers, thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. So Jesus got them together to settle things down. He said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for the many who are held hostage. I think that is absolutely beautiful. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, and we're going to look at chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. I'm going to share this out of the Amplified. And it says, they arrived at Capernaum, and when he was in the house, now scripture actually says it was probably Peter's home, okay? When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing and arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the road, they had discussed and debated with one another which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> Sitting down to teach, he called the 12 disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all in importance and a servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives and welcomes one child such as this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me. Turn with me to Luke 9. And we're going to look at verses 46 through 48. Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter, verses 46 through 48. And this is going to be in the Amplified. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest, surpassing the others in esteem and authority. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and had him stand beside him. And he told them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me also welcomes him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, that is, the one who is genuinely humble, the one with the realist, realistic self-view, he is the one who is truly great. If we look at it in the message, they started arguing over which of them would be most famous. This is so, we, I like this because we can relate to it today. 
because there are still people who are still trying to figure out how many likes they can get in social media, how important they are amongst other people, and how when they come into the congregation, people are gonna turn around and say hi to them. They are still looking to try to be famous, okay? So they started arguing over which of them would be most famous. When Jesus realized how much this mattered to them, he brought a child to his side. Whoever accepts this child, as if the child were me, accepts me, he said. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. You become great by accepting, not asserting. Your spirit, not your size, makes the difference. I, I really like that one. So how did Jesus overcome their lack of humility? Simple. By being an example of humility to them. Remember, he washed their feet. He was a model of servanthood. He humbled himself even unto the death of the cross. Third, not only did they lack understanding and humility, but they also lacked faith. Four times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus calls them on this fact. If you turn to Matthew's gospel, and this is scripture that you're very well aware of, Matthew's gospel, the sixth chapter, we're gonna look at verses 30 through 33. And it says in the Amplified, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive and green today and tomorrow, is cut and thrown as fuel into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry or be anxious, perpetually uneasy, distracted, saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear? For the pagan Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but do not worry. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first, and most importantly, seek, aim at, strive after his kingdom and his righteousness, his way of doing and being right, the attitude and character of God. And all these things will be given to you also. Okay. So I'll put a pin in it here. When we come back next week, I have to share with you the fourth and fifth thing, the fourth and fifth challenge they had. You can jot this down. The fourth was they lacked commitment. That's something that is even current in, in this time in which we live, that there are many people who lack commitment. And fifth, they lacked power. So we're gonna talk about that. And then we're also, and this is the part I'm so excited about, I'm going to take these 12 ordinary men and I'm going to break them down into three groups of four based upon their intimacy with Christ. Because the best way to explain it is we all are excited because we're here in the teaching ministry of Apostle Frederick Casey Price, okay? And we all can talk about different things that we learned from him. And, you know, some of us can tell you how wonderful it is that we got a chance to maybe go to a luncheon of Dr. Betty's or, you know, we got to shake their hands when they're here and all the rest of that. And that's wonderful, okay? Because we're, you know, people who we could say we're disciples of his teaching and that's a wonderful thing. 
So if we broke ourselves into groups, we could be in one group, okay? Then there are those who have known him for a longer period of time. So we might be in a different group. But then there's Minister Scott, who's in the family. So he can tell us stuff that we never know any other kind of way. He has an intimacy with the apostle that none of us could ever have. So that's another group. So I'm gonna do that when it comes to these 12 ordinary men, because you're going to find that all of them did not have the same intimate relationship with Jesus as the others did. So we're finally at the point where we're gonna break it down and see. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.